basically our family's uh, pizza and movie night. It's just kind of, we're all done with the week, done with work, and done with school, and it's just kind of an evening for our family to hang out. And so Friday night, we uh, put the pizza in the oven and uh, put in a movie, and we watched uh, Santa Claus 3 with uh, Tim Allen in it. And uh, these are some uh, really funny movies, really good movies for, for the kids, and it keeps our interest as the parents as well. But what happens in this story is um, Santa Claus kind of becomes uh, disillusioned with, or Tim Allen, his character, becomes disillusioned with being Santa Claus. And he gets tricked into wishing he never would have been Santa Claus. And the person that ends up being Santa Claus is Jack Frost. And Jack Frost has a cold heart. And so he kind of turns the North Pole and the whole gift giving into a very commercial enterprise. And he turns the North Pole into an amusement park. And kids are coming with their parents from all over the place to this amusement park. And in the background, you can hear the voice of Jack Frost say something. Um, I, I didn't write down the quote when I heard it, but uh, he says something roughly. Remember, kids, how much your parents spend on gifts is a reflection of their love for you. And all these parents are just trying to spend, spend, spend to show their children how much they love them. And you hear that line, and I think instinctively we know that that's not right. And yet I wonder if we haven't often bought into that lie, at least in practice. This morning I want to talk about how we might spend less or spend differently this Advent season. As we come this morning, would you pray with me? Jesus, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts this morning be pleasing to you. Would you be moving in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. It's Mark Twain who is often blamed or credited most often with the phrase, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand that bother me. There are parts of the Bible that can be hard for us to grasp and put our minds around and, and figure out, but I'm not sure that our passage that Jeff read for us this morning is one of those. Now, Jesus talked a lot about money. Actually, all of Scripture talks a lot about money and how we handle it, how we control it, or sometimes how it controls us. Sermons on money, how we spend, how we save, how we give, whatever, uh, if it involves money, these are sometimes the most uncomfortable sermons for us. Last week, we talked about how we worship fully, or we are invited to worship fully in this Advent season. The God who takes on flesh and comes and walks among us, who lives with us, and Jesus shows us the heart of God. And that flows into our thoughts this morning on how we might spend less. I had a, a professor in college who said something like, show me your checkbook and I'll show you what you worship. Or I'll show you what your priorities are by your checkbook. 
Our purchases often reveal something of our priorities or our values, what we hold dear. I mean, yes, there's the, the utilities and all that, but what do we spend our time and our money on? The Advent Conspiracy asks, what does spending all that money on toys or tech or jewelry have to do with celebrating God made flesh in Jesus? You know, Jesus said some pretty pointed things about wealth and about possessions. In our scripture this morning, Jesus says, don't store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. And then he says, if your eyes are healthy, and in the Greek, that implies generous. If, if your eyes are generous, if you are generous with your possessions and your wealth, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, implying being stingy, holding back for yourself, your whole body will be full of darkness. He goes on to say, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The old King James said, mammon, the personification of wealth, bowing down. I like that because it, it turns wealth not just into this material thing, but in this almost demonic force that we can bow to. Elsewhere, Jesus tells uh, a rich young man who comes and says, Jesus, I've tried to keep the law my entire life. I've, I've tried to do all the right things. And Jesus says, that's wonderful, but you're still missing something. He says, go sell all you have and give to the poor. Of course, we live in a world where we do need to use money. And earning a living and taking care of your, your family and, and providing for your needs is a biblical principle. In 1 Timothy 5, Verse 8, Paul says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And one time I was in a Bible study and we were talking about wealth and possessions and someone quoted this, this verse. And that is true. There's the biblical principle. Paul goes on in the same book, a chapter later, in 1 Timothy 6, 8, to say, but if we have food and clothing... We will be content with that. Most of us have our physical needs met. But there's this tradition, this practice of those who have followed Jesus. The early church enacted its belief in Jesus by caring for one another's needs. And different renewal movements throughout church history have tried to recapture and to recover the teachings of Jesus, and they've cared for one another's physical needs. Basil the Great, I'd never really heard of Basil the Great, I had heard of his quote, but in the 300s, he said, when someone steals another's clothes, we call them a thief. Should we not give the same name to the one who could clothe the naked and does not? The bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry. The coat unused in your closet belongs to the one who needs it. The shoes rotting in your closet belong to the one who has no shoes. The money which you hoard up belongs to the poor. Throughout church history, this recovery of this radical blessing of those around us. 
In the Middle Ages, brothers and sisters in monasteries and convents cared for each other's needs as well as those of their neighbors around them. Our Anabaptist tradition, uh, different Anabaptist groups enacted radical mutual aid in caring for each other's needs. If you had were in need of assistance, you had a family of people to rely on, to come to. There's another story of John Wesley and his willingness to share with those around him. When John was a little boy, he saw his own father, march, who was a pastor, march off to debtor's prison. And so when John followed his father into the ministry, he had no illusions about financial rewards. But John followed a little bit different direction of God's leading, and he was uh, teaching at Oxford University. And his position usually paid him at least 30 pounds a year, more than enough for John, who was a single man, to live on. John seemed to have enjoyed his prosperity at the beginning of his life, and he often was known to spend his uh, income on playing cards. That was a no-no then. Um, on tobacco products, on alcohol. And he spent his money in this way. But while he was at Oxford, an incident changed his perspective on money. He just finished paying for some pictures for his room. And a chambermaid, somebody who was coming to clean the room, came to his door. And it was a cold winter day. He noticed that she had nothing to protect her from the cold except a thin linen gown. He reached into his pocket to give her some money to buy a coat, but found he had too little left after buying his pictures and spending his money how he wanted to. Immediately the thought struck him that the Lord would not be pleased with the way he had spent his money, and he asked himself, will God say, well done, good and faithful steward? That, he, he, he says, thou hast adorned thy walls with money, which might have screened this poor creature from the cold. O justice, O mercy, are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? After that, John began to live in a very different way. He would limit his expenses so that he would have money to help the poor. And so he records that one year his income was 30 pounds and his living expenses were 28 pounds. And so he had two pounds to give away. The next year his income doubled and he still managed to live on the same amount, 28 pounds. And so he had 32 pounds to give to the poor. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds. Instead of letting his expenses rise with his income, he kept them to 28 pounds, and he gave away 62. In the fourth year, he received 120. Eventually, his income was, he was bringing in over 1,400 pounds. He continued to live on 30 pounds and gave away nearly his entire income because he had no family to care for. He had no need for savings. He was afraid of laying up treasures on earth so money went out in charity as quickly as it came in. He reports that he never had 100 pounds at any one time. 
John preached that Christians should consider themselves uh, members of the poor whom God had given them money to aid. And so he lived and he ate with his poor neighbors and those around him. In 1744, Wesley wrote, When I die, if I leave behind me ten pounds, you and all mankind may bear witness against me that I have lived and died a thief and a robber. When he died in 1791, the only money mentioned in his will was the miscellaneous coins to be found in his pockets and dresser drawers. He lived it out, caring for those around him, being moved by a God of justice and mercy to care for those around him. Worshiping a God of mercy and justice should move us towards mercy and justice. Biblical commentator Craig Keener says that most Christians disagree with what prosperity preachers say over the radio and television. But the main difference between us and them in practice is often that they provide a theological justification for their materialism, and we do not. How exactly do we determine what it means to live simply and spend less? Some groups in the church have attempted to define exactly what simplicity means. It means you need to wear this, not wear that. You need to buy this and not buy that. If you're interested in some practical suggestions, there's a book by Ron Sider called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. It's got a lot of interesting things to say about economy and, and how we live as followers of Jesus and how our relationship with Jesus impacts our economic decisions. I highly suggest you go and read this book. But one suggestion is what Wesley did. He kept his income at what you need for you and your family, and he gave the rest away. Ron Sider talks about a graduated tithe, and he uh, suggests giving 10% of your base income, what you need to survive on. And anything you uh, earn above that base income, you tithe more of. You give more, uh, a higher percentage away. But how do we decide what to spend many money on? And when is it better for us to spend more instead of spending less? Maybe it's about the best bargain versus quality of a product. Maybe a question you need to ask yourself when you're purchasing things is, how does the company or production of an item treat its employees? How does a, a product impact God's creation? Could you spend more on products or services that really benefit those who produce them? Maybe our hot cocoa. I'm sure you could buy cheaper hot cocoa. But maybe there's a time to spend more because somebody else is going to be helped and valued on the other end. A couple weeks ago, Katie and I uh, were in uh, Kitchen Kettle Village and we stopped by uh, all of the shops. Um, but we walked into uh, 10,000 villages. Um, it's, it's, I think that's still run by the Mennonite Central Committee, and um, it's all kinds of products from around the world created by 
uh, artisans and craftsmen in all kinds of countries who need a living fair wage for the things that they produce. And the thought crossed my mind as I walked through the store, I don't need any of this. I don't need any of it. But maybe at that moment, it's not about what I need. It's a chance to support someone who's working hard. And not just with a handout. Not just with giving them money, but valuing them as a person, as an artisan, as a craftsman, giving them worth beyond the dollar. But including the dollar. In our house, we have uh, discussions, we'll call it that, um, <laughs> over, over keeping grocery bills low versus buying locally and ethically raised food. Um, Katie's parents are dairy farmers, and so we often pay attention to um, the milk industry and, and what's happening there, and uh, we we know the numbers to look for on our gallon of milk so that we make sure that we're buying Pennsylvania-produced milk. We need to be careful about prescribing one-size-fits-all solutions for what it means to live simply. For a family struggling to put food on the table, paying for local grass-raised beef is out of the question. And for me, you know, I really value learning how to produce my own food. Uh, my wife and a lot of other people think I'm kind of crazy. This spring, I really want to have chickens. I'd love to have lots of other animals, not as pets, <laughs> but for food. I'll just say it that way. I love working out in the garden and learning uh, to raise my own food. But there's a time and there's an energy factor that can complicate life rather than simplifying. So while I think it's a wonderful thing to learn and to have that knowledge, you have to think about how does that complicate life? I would love every year to make maple syrup. I did it one year. It takes a lot of time to make maple syrup. And so Katie says, you know, we can just buy syrup at the store. <laughs> It'll take a lot less of your time. But I do think it's important for us to raise our awareness of our economic impact on our local and global neighbors. To know how our choices impact those around us and how we can tell good news to folks around us. And most of us could probably stand to spend less this Christmas season. I could spend less on things and, uh, that try to make me happy. I could spend less on my leisure when others struggle and don't have the convenience of leisure. You know, really, I don't need anything. I don't need a new iPad. I don't really need a bigger TV. I don't really need really anything. Or maybe this Advent season, it's not just about spending less. It's about spending differently. Maybe we rethink where we direct that money. 
and maybe how we uh, lift up other people through the money we spend. Last week I talked uh, about how Mary worshipped a God in her Magnificat. She sings the praises of God, but she worshipped a God filled with mercy and justice towards the forgotten. Jesus shows us what a God of mercy and justice looks like. So I wonder how might the one we worship call us to spend less or spend differently this Advent season? How could we use those funds to support people, to support the spread of the gospel and the good news of Jesus? As we close our worship,